There is no one like our God, church. Let's open up to Psalm 113. If you grab the Bible in front of you, that would be on page 510 on the upper left-hand side there. This is Psalm 113. And as you turn there, I'll just share a few quotes with you to whet your appetite. One commentator, Jeffrey Grogan, said of this psalm that it is an exquisite and quite complex piece of Hebrew poetry presenting a theology of wonder which speaks of a God whose greatness goes hand in hand with his compassion for those most at risk in life. Another commentator says of this psalm that in both Judaism and Christianity, Psalm 113 was a special psalm employed in the worship of God at those times in the liturgical calendar when praise par excellence should be addressed to the Almighty. And last that I'll share is from Charles Spurgeon. He says, this psalm is one of pure praise and contains but little which requires exposition. A warm heart full of admiring adoration of the Most High will best of all comprehend this sacred hymn. Its subject is the greatness and condescending goodness of the God of Israel as exhibited in lifting up the needy from their low estate. So with those quotes made, let's go ahead and read Psalm 113 for ourselves. The word of God reads, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now, approaching your throne of grace to ask for help. We come to you, Lord, in prayer by the blood of your son, Jesus, and in the power of your spirit, through whom, Lord, both you gave us access to you to ask of you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, this morning that we would have hearts, Lord, that long to praise you from the very depths of our being, Lord, more and more. That from our hearts, Lord, would overflow daily a pleasing theme to you, recounting your glory, recounting your goodness. 
singing of your awesome power. Lord, we want to be better worshipers. And we ask, God, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, when we've forgotten, when we've lost sight of you, when we've considered other things as more important than you, Lord. And forgive us, Lord, when we've shown up with hearts that are, that are distracted and when we've shown up with hearts that are, are divided and when we've come, Lord, and we've barely moved our lips and our mouths, Lord, to sing your praises. Forgive us in those days, Lord, when we have not praised you. And we thank you, God, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious. That you are a God who is rich with forgiveness. And that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And although, even though our sin is great, your mercy is more, Lord. May you help us this morning to hear and to heed, to obey this psalm, to praise your holy name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we prayed for the Muniz and Kleemeyer families as we said goodbye to them, both, of who, both families which were families that were dearly loved by our church. And now also we've prayed for Beatrice, our dear sister, this morning as well, who we're going to miss dearly. But last week, if you remember, Jamie did something that maybe none of you were expecting. He made a Kung Fu Panda quote in his parting words. And I didn't know it was a Kung Fu Panda quote at the time. I haven't seen Kung Fu Panda in a while. Uh, but he, he mentioned a, a quote from Master Uguay in which he He's, he says to Poe, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. That is why it's called the present. And I think that the idea that today is a gift is a wonderful, true, biblical, you know, that's, that, that's rock solid truth. Today is a gift. And also in the English language, we do call it the present. But one thing that the Kung Fu master doesn't mention is where that gift comes from and why we even have that gift in the first place. It, it, it's weird to think about, but each of us are sharing in this moment the present. We're sharing in this moment something that, that will not be repeated ever again. It's unique in, in, in a million different ways. And yet it's here, and we're in it, and it's a gift from God to us. But why is he giving it to us? What is it that we should be doing today? Isn't that so often like one of our, our greatest existential you know, struggles? What should I be doing? What, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> if you've ever thought that. What should I do today with my time? Why, why do I have this gift of the present? And I think that if you read this psalm and you ask that question of this psalm, you can only have one answer. The present is for praise. 
The present is for praise. It's a gift of God given to us to praise the name of Yahweh. So whatever day it is, whatever season we find ourselves in, we understand that the present is for praise. We're going to look first, because the psalm breaks just very nicely into two sections. We're going to look first at the exhortation to praise, and then second at the motivation to praise. And uh, there's, some, there's an outline in your notes if you'd like to follow along. There's only two fill-in-the-blanks this time, so some of you like a lot of those. Uh, sorry, maybe the next sermon. But you have two you can wait for, and they're near the end. And uh, don't get those wrong, okay? So let's begin with this exhortation to praise. If you were to ask this psalmist what it is that he wants other people to do today, right here, right now, in the present, he could not make it more abundantly clear than by by starting this psalm out in in the most just extravagant, hard-hitting, powerful, commanding way. Three times right off the back, praise, praise, praise. But praise who? Praise is not just to be made to whoever we feel like. The present is not given to us to praise ourselves. The present is not here for us to to, to praise our, our favorite heroes. The present is here for us to praise the Lord. And when you have here in the ESV, Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters, Uh, that's an indication that in the Hebrew, it's using the divine name, which would be four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. And we put that into English sometimes as Jehovah or as Yahweh. So either of those could be a way of rendering that kind of into an English form. Uh, But it's a word, uh, it's a name that God reveals to Moses and to Israel that this is his name. When Moses encounters God, the angel of the Lord appearing in a a flaming bush in Exodus chapter 3, he's uh, commissioned by God because God has seen the affliction of his people. And so he has come down to rescue them, to save them, to deliver them, and to bring them out of Egypt. And God sends Moses and tells him to get the people ready and tell them that God is going to bring them out. And he asks, Moses asks God, well, what if they ask who sent me? What should, we say, what should I say to them? And God tells him, you know, that tell them I am sent you. Or tell them Yahweh sent you. That word, uh, is, that name is just built off of the to be verb in, in the Hebrew language. And so we get the idea that God is the I am. He is the eternally existing, self-sufficient God. He is the one who is. And he reveals this name to them, and they then are are brought out by God's mercy and his power and his judgment. They're brought out of Egypt, and they're brought to Sinai, and they enter into covenant with God, and they become a holy nation, and they become a, a, a nation that's to be priests and servants to God so that all the rest of the surrounding nations can come to know and come to praise, not the gods of their nations, but the one true and living God, Yahweh, the Lord. 
And this is who our psalmist wants to be praised. It's not praise the God of your region. It's not praise the God of your nation. It's not praise the God of your heart. It's praise the God who is and who was and who will be forever. The only, the one, the true, the unique God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, apart from whom there is no other God. Yahweh is to be praised. He is to be praised because he is a God who's revealed himself. And I love one quote that I found by uh, Derek Kidner. He says that there's a point in specifying the Lord's servant and his name, since worship to be acceptable must be more than flattery and more than guesswork. It is the loving homage of the committed to the revealed. We call on the name of Yahweh because God revealed himself in that way. And we, as the psalmist would have us, are to praise the Lord. Who is to praise the Lord? Who is to be praised? Yahweh. Who is it that is supposed to praise Yahweh? Here in this psalm, the emphasis is on the servants of Yahweh. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Now, God often depicts himself as the master and his people as his servants. And so if you are a person who believes in Yahweh, if you're a person who believes in the Lord, if you're a person who has committed yourself to following him and you're not bearing his name in vain, in other words, you're not just claiming to be Yahweh's but not, aren't actually Yahweh's. You're, you're not just claiming that he exists and yeah, you believe in him, but, but your whole life you're not living with him or walking in any communion with him, then you are not his servants. But you can become his servants today by humbling yourselves, turning to him, and beginning to praise his holy name. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. The servants of the Lord are, are, are those who are God's people, who've acknowledged that God is their God and that they are in humility relying on his mercy, seeking to serve and to worship him and view him as their king and view themselves as his slaves. In the New Testament, all of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are slaves of Christ and we're considered slaves of the Lord. We are those who are to worship the Lord. So who is to be worshipped? Yahweh. Who is to worship Yahweh? His servants. And then next, when should Yahweh be praised? We see this in the next verse. Look at what verse 2 says. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So we understand who is to be praised, that's Yahweh. We understand who it is to praise him, his servants. And that means that includes you if you are in Christ and you are, you are a believer in the Lord and you declare that Jesus is Lord, then you are to bless the name of the Lord. When? From this time forth and forevermore. Some of you may think, man, that's a long time. That's a long time. Like I, sometimes I would hold Abraham, and after the first song, he's like, Daddy, all done? <laughs> Daddy, all done, right? Uh, 
No, son, we got more praising to do. <laughs> uh, after the second song, all done, daddy? All done? Nope. We got more praising of the Lord to do. Praise him. Praise him from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, could you come up with a better verse to prove that the present is a gift given to us for praise? Let the name of the Lord be blessed from this day forth, from now on and forevermore. But when it, what about when I don't feel like praising him? Praise the Lord from this day forth and forevermore. What about when I'm, dis, I'm sad and I'm discouraged and then when I'm suffering from great loss? Praise the Lord from now, from this time forth and forevermore. Blessed be his name. When the season is easy for you, blessed be his name on our lips. When the season is more difficult for you, bless him when it feels like life has never been greater. Bless him when it feels like life has never gotten lower and harder. Praise the name of the Lord, when? From this day forth and forevermore. Praise the name of the Lord, whether you're three, whether you're, you're 33, whether you're 93. From this day forth, all you servants of the Lord, don't let a day go by without praising the Lord. I think we have a beautiful example in the scriptures of someone who praised the Lord, even when it was dark and difficult, even in the midst of, of great loss. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but you know about Job. Let me read what happens with Job. It says, now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have come to have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Layer upon layer upon layer, everything that was dear to Job was stripped off of him in that moment. It says Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Job seems to understand the same exact concept the psalm is preaching and calling us to. And so whatever day you find yourself in, the present day, no matter how dark and difficult it is, is a day from now and forevermore that is meant for the praise of Yahweh. Lastly, in this exhortation to praise, we see where the Lord is to be praised from. So Yahweh is to be praised. He's to be praised by his servants. He's to be praised from this day forth and forevermore. And no matter where they go or no matter where his servants find themselves, no matter what, what place they, they go to, whether the, as far as the east or as far as the west, they are to praise the name of the Lord. The Lord is to be the one who receives universal sovereign praise of all the nations wherever his servants are abiding. It says in verse 3, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And when you look at that verse, I struggled with it for a second because when I, thought, uh, when I read that, my initial thought is more of a temporal idea than a spatial idea. More of an idea that, okay, from the time the sun goes up to the sun, the sun goes down, I should praise the Lord. And I think the psalmist would be like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> but I don't think that that's maybe what he's saying in this verse. And the reason for that uh, is, is one, you, the verse before already hit on the temporal, now and forever. So it's kind of interesting to go now and forever and then go and then go move from that to backwards to morning to, to, to evening. Um, it's not Terribly, terrible. He could, he, could, he could have done that. Um, but I think that the focus here is spatial. And the reason for that is, is the words used in Hebrew for east and west is from the rising of the sun. That's the east. To the sun setting. That's the west. That's how they literally use the word to speak about the directional orientation. And so from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised, speaks to the fact that there is to be universal, uh, uh, you know, uh, everywhere praise being offered up to the Lord wherever his servants may live. I like a quote that Mark Futado uh, gives in his commentary. He says that these verses demonstrate the incomparable character of the Lord who, uh, uh, of the Lord makes him worthy to be praised throughout all time and throughout all space. And so in every season, in every part of the earth, wherever the servants are, they should be praising Yahweh now and forevermore. That's a pretty wonderful call to praise. Amen? That's the exhortation. So do you praise him? Are you praising him now and forevermore? Do you make it a habit to praise him with your family, to praise him in your home, to praise him in your, praise him in your car, to praise him on the Lord's day, to, to praise him? Even if it's just a, a few words between a job that you're doing, God, praise you that my hands can still do this, that my feet can still hold me, that my legs can still go and walk. Praise you, Lord, that I can still afford to be in this home that I'm in. Praise you for your provision. Praise you for all the gifts that you have given. Praise be to you, Lord. Praise be to you when you give. And praise be to you when you take away. 
the Lord is to be praised from this time forth and forevermore. Let's move now to the motivation to praise. And, and here is, I think, uh, a, a section that is hugely encouraging. If you ever feel like, I, I'm just struggling to praise God right now, uh, you need a little motivation to praise. You need some good reasons to rem remind you of why you should be praising the Lord. And so the psalmist not only tells us what to do in those first three verses, praise the Lord, but now in the rest of the psalm, he gives you the reason why you should do that or the motivation for doing so. And that is the fact that he is worthy to be praised. Why should we praise the Lord? Let's take a look at the things that uh, the psalmist gives here. But we could, we could divide these into uh, two. The first of which is that we are to praise the Lord because of the heights of his glory. You see, the reason for proper, or the, the proper motivation for worship, the best reason to praise God is always because of God himself. He is the, uh, he, his character, his person, his works, all of it that we experience is a continuous fountain uh, that should fill our hearts and cause us to praise him. We have never ending reasons to praise him when we contemplate his glorious person and his amazing works. And so let's first consider how he is to be praised. He's to be praised because of the heights of his glory. Look at verse four. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. What an incredible statement. You and I can't even begin to comprehend. You know, we look up at the stars and we're like, that's crazy. That is so high. That is so far. And, and you know, that's just with the naked eye. And then you get like, you know, a Hubble telescope or something. And then you look through that and you're like, oh my goodness, we can see way, way more. And it just keeps going and going and going. Can't even believe how high and how far that is. And then you read the Psalm and you say, yeah. And God is like all the way, way up past all of that, looking down on all of that. That's how high up he is. That's how exalted he is. That's how lifted up he is. That's where his throne sits, high above all. He's in the, the one spot of absolute sovereign rule over the heavens and the earth, over the nations. Oh, all the puny nations, all the nations that think they're great and think they're powerful, and all the prideful kings who Psalm 2 says, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed and, and want to throw off his bonds and cast away his fetters and tear apart his cords so that they won't have to submit and become servants of Yahweh and they fight against him. What does the Psalm 2 say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's seated high. He sits there and he looks down and he's not intimidated one bit. 
<laughs> no one, no, no nation, no, no president, no king, no, no powerful person can thwart or overthrow God. He is higher than we could ever imagine. He's so high up, this text says, it's like he's looking down on both, not just the earth, but the heavens themselves. This is amazing. This is, a, this is not a good reason to praise him. When you think, man, I don't, know if I, I, I don't know if I feel like praising God, just stop for a second and think about what you're saying. Think about where God is right now. Think about how mighty he is. Think about how, how, how exalted he is. Think about how lifted up he is. Think about how there's no one deserving of honor and glory and praise more than God in this moment or and now and forever. And let that motivate and encourage you to praise him. He is high above all the nations. He can turn and direct the, the, the king's heart. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this truth the hard way. Go read Daniel 4. You can read it in more depth, but let me just remind you, Nebuchadnezzar goes, and he's looking at his kingdom, and he's like, wow, he's looking down probably on his kingdom. Wow, look at this. Look at, look at all that my hand did. I'm great. I'm mighty. I'm lofty, right? And God humbles him, and he, he literally causes him to, to turn. It says that his dwelling, he will be driven for men and his dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and he'll be made to eat grass like an ox for seven periods of time until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It says immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven among, from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. All that pride <laughs> in a second stripped from him, laid low, humbled, turned into practically a beast, all because he would not acknowledge the Lord or give thanks to him or serve him. And he thought that this was his doing. As this goes on, it says Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now you're looking in the right direction, Nebuchadnezzar. It says that when he did that, his reason returned to him, and I blessed the Most High. Do you ever wonder why he's called the Most High? Now you know, right? Because <laughs> he's way up there. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth, all you tiny little ones down there, are accounted as nothing. And he does according to the will, his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? His senses really returned to him in order to be able to say that. He humbled himself before the Lord, recognized the glory of the, the, the height of God's glory and the foolishness of his pride. And he, uh, and at that point, then says that his reason returned to him and also his kingdom and splendor. And he says that now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that the present is for praise. It's not for you to pat yourself on the back. It's not for you to boast in your accomplishments. It's for you to acknowledge the Lord who rules over it all and who gives and reigns over it all, who gives to all men, all power, everything that they have. He is high above all. And that's why verse 5, it goes on to say, then who is like the Lord our God? What's the answer to that? No one. No one is like the Lord our God. No one is up there with him. Nobody's on that level with him. No one is like him. He's utterly unique, totally alone in his glory. That's why they say, holy, 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 because they're trying to communicate this truth. He's in a category set apart from everything else as the creator over his creation. That's how high up he is. He is transcendent. He is seated on high, which speaks about his throne being up there and him ruling over it all. When Solomon's building the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and he's dedicating it, he prays this prayer and says, but will, he's, you know, built this wonderful temple. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Brothers and sisters, that is the height of his glory. The highest heaven cannot contain him. He's way, way up there. And that should be powerful motivation to praise him. I mean, when, when we, we do this all the time, and, and people say, right, give respect where respect is due. You need to give glory where glory is due. Uh, when, when we're in conversations about athletes, great athletes, great sports players, uh, we, we, we talk about them. And one of the things that everyone loves to debate is, is who's the GOAT, right? Who is the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? And you have these debates and you're going back and forth and you're comparing stats and you're comparing years and you're comparing rings and you're comparing all these things, right? And, and if, if, if you're, you know, not dealing with the facts about a person, you know, then, then, then really everyone else is just like, you got to just acknowledge it. He is the goat, or she is the goat. How much more with God? And none of these sports players are anything compared to the Lord. You, it's right that, that we acknowledge them and, and say, look at their accomplishments. Look at the things that they've achieved. Look at the things that they have done with their great talent and great abilities. It, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging they're at the highest level and no one, there might not be another person, human being who lives and reaches that level. God is the greatest of all time and the greatest of all things and the greatest of all ways. And he is the one who's greatest of all praise. He is utterly alone. He is the goat. So get that out of your mouth about a goat. <laughs> and praise him. Acknowledge him. He is totally alone. Give him the glory that he is due for creation. Give him the glory that he is due for, for preservation. Give him the glory that he is due for redemption, for saving your soul and for giving you the breath that you have and the ability for you to even think and hear the words coming out of my mouth and for them to make sense. Give him the praise for all of that. He is one of a kind. And you might think, and this is something that, that, that is brought up you might think that because God is so high up that he would not care at all 
for the affairs of man. The heat would be so high up that it would just get to his head and he wouldn't care. Or, or he'd be so high up that he would just have better things to do, you know, that are more pressing for his time. And he wouldn't waste his time with, you know, tiny little puny subjects like ourselves who were way down there on the earth. In fact, I thought it was really interesting. A, a friend of mine posted a quote uh, that was from a, a book about Charles Spurgeon. But in this book, it had a quote from Mark Twain. And listen to this quote, quote from Mark Twain. It's in, in his diary. And it's his diary entry on the day that he visited Charles Spurgeon's church. And Mark Twain was, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know where he end, ended up as far as the end of his life. But he has lots of quotes where he, he's pretty critical of Christians. But this is, he, he, he decides to visit Charles Spurgeon's church, and this is what he says in his diary. Sunday, August 17th, 1879. Raw and cold and a drenching rain. Went to hear Mr. Spurgeon. House three-quarters full, say... 3,000 people. First hour lacking one, min lacking one minute taken up with prayers. Two ugly hymns and a scripture reading. <laughs> sermon three quarters of an hour long. I'm going to beat that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, th sermon three quarters of an hour long. A fluent talker. Good sonorous voice. Topic treated in the unpleasant old-fashioned way. Man, a mighty bad child. God working at him in 40 ways and having a world of trouble with him. A wooden-faced congregation, just the sort to see no incongruity in the majesty of heaven, stooping to plead and sentimentalize over such and see in their salvation an important matter. What's he saying? He's essentially pitting the height of God's glory, how high and lifted up he is, his royal majesty, and saying, if that's really true, then he would have no time for you. He would not care about your salvation. He would, he would, he would not be concerned at all, much less would he stoop, much less would he plead. He's a king. How, you believe in a king that would stoop and plead for you to turn from your sin? And to be saved by trusting in him and his grace? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, Heathen philosophers could not believe that the great God was observant of the small events of human history. They pictured, uh, they pictured him as an abiding, uh, excuse me, as abiding in serene indifference to all the wants and woes of his creatures. Is that what he's like? What would the psalmist have to say? The psalmist says here in this verse that though God is high, though he is seated on high, he looks down, or possibly even better, because this word means to make low. So he makes low to see would be like a super wooden, you know, uh, English rendering. He makes low to see. So either he's causing his eyes to look, you know, very low, or he's stooping 
to, to take a closer, you know, to, this, you guys are so far down there that I'm gonna have to get down myself to, you know, to then look and give you the attention that you, you need and you deserve, and which then communicates something, I think, of both his humility and also his willingness and his love and his mercy, his tender, caring mercy. He's not too proud to beg. He's not too proud to stoop. He's gonna call his people. He's gonna call sinners. Leave your evil ways and come to me and I will abundantly pardon. He cares. And so the height of his glory is no, no exception. In fact, it's perfectly matched with the depth of his mercy. That leads us to this next reason to praise him. And that is for the depth of his mercy. Praise him for the depth of, depths of his mercy. And look at what's mentioned here in this verse. Is we get these, these practical examples that are things that, that he has done both literally in history and also spiritually with his people. He raises the poor from the dust. Though he is enthroned on high, he cares about the poor who are down in the dirty dust of the earth. And it says that he lifts up the needy from the ash heap. What's the ash heap? The ash heap is like the big pile of trash that gets all, all put in one place and burned. And it's a, it's a, it's a nasty mess. And, and oftentimes the poor would rummage through in order to find some things, to sell some things, or to make a, make a living. And so you have these, the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap, and both of them, it says, he makes to sit. Remember that the word before is that he was seated on high. Same word. That one who is seated on high makes those who are so low to be raised up and to seat them in a higher place. This is our God. He's not so high that he doesn't care about the stuff that's so low. He's so high that he goes so low. This is his great love. It, it, it extends infinitely in both directions. There is no place lower than God can reach. There is no place where you can flee where you're outside of the reach of God. You know, if I go to the furthest regions of the earth, even there you'll be with me. If I make my, my bed in Sheol, even there you'll be with me. Your hand will lead me. Your right hand will guide me. There's nowhere you can go that's out of his reach. And there's nowhere economically or status-wise that you could go that God cannot reach you. And spiritually, there's no low place you can go that God cannot still reach his hand down, grab you, lift you up, clean you off, make you whole, sit you with him. I hope some of you are like, man, I, I might just interrupt this sermon and start praising the Lord. What a God. I praise him for the depths of his mercy. And not only that, we have also this other example that he gives the barren woman a home. Making her the joyous mother of children. In the ancient Near East, in the first century in Israel, it, it was seen as... as a great dishonor to be married and to not be able to have a child. And so for the woman that is married, 
and is barren, who has a child, or who, who has a husband, who loves that husband, they've been trying to have a baby, and they have not been able to have one. She can feel despised by those around her. She can feel like she's a failure. Some would even consider, could, could consider her cursed and deride her and hate her for it and not want anything to do with her because of it. She was, she was very much under, under just, I call it a, oppression from, from the feeling of not being able to have a child. And while others may forget about her and where she may feel alone, what does God do? God gives the barren woman a home and he makes her the joyous mother of children. The barren woman is on his mind and near to his heart. The scriptures are have a number of examples of barren women. I found this interesting. I didn't realize this before this sermon, but the first three times that the barren word is used in the scripture, it's used for the first three wives of the first three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of their wives were barren. Barren for lots of years. Tried and tried and tried. That's why Sarah laughs when she hears she's going to have a, you know, she's going to, the Lord promises her you're going to have a child, and she laughs. I'm 90. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but God, this is what God does. He, he gives life. He opens the womb. He answers the prayer of a woman who be, who's been crying out to him and waiting and waiting and waiting and even being mocked and made fun of and felt like an outcast because of others' actions. You may remember Hannah as well. So we have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all barren. Samson's mo uh, mother, also barren. And they gave, each of these gave, gave birth to incredible, important sons. Guys, where would, where would we be if it were not for God opening the womb of, of Sarah? so that she could then give birth to Isaac. Where would we be if, if, if Rebecca uh, was, womb was not open to give birth to Jacob? There'd be no 12 tribes. There'd be no Israel. There'd be no Messiah. Where would we be? If the Lord had not opened Rachel's womb, who gave birth to Joseph, how did God use Joseph God used Joseph being sold into slavery and then, then going up to the top in Egypt so that when the famine came, his siblings came and Israel was preserved as a people rather than dying of starvation. God opens the womb. God, God opens the womb in an incredible way. So and in, in, in the result of that in these instances were significant people that literally you could like, you the, the whole story would fall apart if you just got rid of any of them. We could also mention Samson. We could, uh, Samson's mother. We could also mention Hannah, who was Samuel's mother. We could also mention Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, who was also barren. 
And then lastly, even though she wasn't barren, this was God's greatest work of all. He caused a baby to enter into a virgin named Mary. Where would the world be without Isaac and Jacob and and Joseph and John the Baptist? And where would the world be without Jesus? God reverses the fortunes and honored each of those women with the gift of of a child. And they were used in incredible ways to be gifts uh, that were, were blessings to so, so many. God deeply cares about the affairs of man. It says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. If you're trying to figure out why should I praise the Lord, what if I don't feel like praising the Lord? You need to praise him because of the greatness of his glory, and you need to praise him because of the depths of his mercy. The poor, the needy, the barren woman, he raises, he lifts, he makes to sit, he removes shame and causes rejoicing. He makes orphans sing and widows dance. This is our God, and we should praise him. He is concerned for the least, and he is present for them, and he loves them, and he cares for them, and he watches over them. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says this. God says, or excuse me, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in, a, in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Mr. Mark Twain, it is no incongruence. Read that verse. (laughs) The one who is high is the one who is also low and near and close and full of mercy and full of compassion and full of grace. And what should this then do for us? This should change everything. This should cause us to fall on our faces, to to humble ourselves before him, to have a, a broken and a contrite heart to confess sin, to understand our need of salvation, understand our need of his his saving grace, that, Lord, we cannot do anything apart from you, but you are high, and we are low, and you are of heaven, and we are of earth, and you are amazing in every way, Lord, and we have fallen short. We are nothing. We are dust. We are vapor. We are dwellers of the dung heap, Lord. Forgive us of our sins, O God. And he does because of the depths of his mercy. Praise him because of the heights of his glory. Praise him for the depths of his mercy. Praise him everywhere you go. I want to quickly apply this in two directions, these truths. That God is so high and he's made himself so low. One, as I've already hinted at, is in regards to our salvation. There's no better way to explain this concept that God is high and yet he makes himself low than through the work that he has done through his son. You have God the Father eternally existing with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit 
and the Father sends the Son who comes. The Son who is dwelling for all eternity in the bosom of the Father. Perfect unity. He was with God and was God, John 1.1 1, 1 says. And he was, uh, Philippians chapter 2 says that, that he was in the form of God. Jesus says in his prayer in John 17 that he wants the disciples to see the glory that he had with the Father before the ages began. So where was the Lord Jesus, the God, the Son, before the ages began? High and lifted up, sharing the throne with the Father. And he made himself low. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. In John 1, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God the Son became flesh. He put on human flesh, became a human being, and lived a perfect life. And died so that he could pay for your sins and my sins. Us who had turned against God, he came, put on our flesh, got dirty with us. And not only that, he obeyed the Lord and gave his life, taking the form of the servant. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was so high, and yet he made himself so low for the needy, for the poor, for those who had no spiritual fruit in their lives. And three days later, he raised up from the grave. Though his body laid in the dust of the tomb, the father caused his body to resurrect from the grave three days after his death. And he was lifted up from the dust and, and he was raised up and he was then brought up and seated at the right hand of God in heaven in, but with his body. So, so this is incredible. And so one who is so high yet made himself so low was then exalted and brought up so high. Why? Because that's what God does. So where are you and I in this story? Well, we're low. We're low. We, I mean, we are, we, we're unimaginably low because of our sinning, because of our rebellion, because of the way that we've lived our lives. And yet there is hope for us. If we'll acknowledge our needy state, if we will acknowledge that we are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked spiritually, and if we'll cry out to God for mercy and grace, we will receive it. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no place too deep, too dark, too far that God cannot reach you, grab you, save you, make you his child, and seat you with his son in the heavenly places. Are you here and haven't called upon the name of the Lord yet? You're not praising the name of the Lord. You're not living for his praise. You're living for, for yourself. You haven't acknowledged the lordship of Jesus. You, ha you, haven't, you haven't bowed your knee to him and put your faith in him and turned from your sin. I want to, you to know God calls you right now to turn and to believe in his son, and he promises you salvation. He promises to lift you up right where you are and seat you with his son in the heavenly places. To shower you with grace and mercy and forgive and wipe away all your sin. But you have to come. 
You have to believe in him. You have to put your faith and hope and trust in him. And if you do, well, in the words of Peter, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he will exalt you. So come to him today and tell someone that you've come to him today if you've come here and you've, you've heard this. But for the rest of us who know this, may these truths be precious and dear to us and cause us to praise. The last thing I just want to add here in the mention of how God cares for the poor and the needy, I want to suggest just a practical way in regards to our service. Should we not also be like our Father in heaven? He cares for the poor. He cares for the needy. He cares for the barren woman. He's not too high to do any of that low work down there. If God is not, uh, you know, if God is not the one, you know, saying that, you know, that's below me, who uh, we got no business ourselves acting like that's below me. If Jesus is going to wash feet, right? He says that you're going to wash feet too, disciples. Follow your master. The son did what the father did. And we Christians who believed in the son do what the son did. And when you notice and you take a look at the son's life and his ministry, what do you see? Guys, he cared so much for those who were outcasts, those who were downtrodden, those who were weak, those who were frail, those who were poor, those who were sick, that it bothered other people. What do you mean, pastor? Let me give you a few examples. Think about how Jesus would go and just touch a leper. A person that nobody would come near and that, it, that, that if you were to come near, the leper is supposed to shout out that they're unclean so everyone else can know and then avoid the person fully. But Jesus himself goes and he doesn't just, you know, he, he doesn't just say the word from afar, but he would even go lay his hands on them and touch them. Those who to everyone else would, 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 would do everything to avoid. Jesus, though he is king of heaven incarnate in the human flesh, when he's going about his, his ministry, he still has time to spend with those who are outcasts, those who are sinners. You remember the Pharisees being upset? Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need the physician, but the sick. It's sinners. Sinners need me. This is what I came for, to save these people who need me. Jesus one time was in a Pharisee's house, and a woman came in. who's was a woman of the city who was a sinful woman, and she began to wipe his feet and anoint his feet and wipe his feet with her hair and kiss his feet. And one of the other Pharisees who were the man's house that they were in looked over with disgust and was like, Ugh. If this man knew what kind of woman this was, he would, if, you know, if he was a prophet, he would know and he would never let this happen. And Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. 
He was, he was so concerned. He gave time for the least of these. He gave time for the children. Remember when he's going and the children want to speak to Jesus and the disciples are like, nah, you know, Jesus got a lot of important stuff to do, kids. You know, like, no time for you. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Let the little children come to me. He cares for the least of these. He calls us to care for the least of these. And so we should be making sure that in our life and in our service, as those who are praising God daily, that we are also seeking to follow him in his care for those who are least loved and least cared for. Think about these words from Jesus in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The God that we serve, his name is Yahweh. And he is high and lifted up. And he sits in heaven. And he stoops to care for even those who are most lowly in this world. May we be a people who do the exact same things. Do you ever make anyone upset by how low you're willing to go? Do you ever make anyone upset by how low you're willing to stoop or what service you're willing to engage in, which people you're willing to even get dirty with? Do you have eyes to see those below you? Do you have a ministry of lifting and raising up like our father does and like the son had? Paul says in Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help urgent cases of need and not be unfruitful. Would to God that we would be like him and that we would be taking part in a life and ministry that praises him and lifts others up from the dust. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our time this morning to praise you. Thank you for the, the incredible blessing it is to know you, that you revealed yourself to us and we are your servants and we acknowledge you. You are the Lord. You are Yahweh. There is none other beside you. You alone are the God who is the one true and living God, the Savior of the world. And we praise you for the height of your greatness and glory, and for the depths of your grace and mercy. Make us merciful as you are merciful, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.